Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, it is now 11 o'clock a.m. on Saturday, September 30th. At least it's 11 o'clock a.m. on the Pacific Coast, which means that the first session of General Conference has just concluded. The Saturday morning session is over here. I know it doesn't get over until, I think, noon in Utah, so I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. That may be the only way in which I'm ahead of the curve because I'm unsupervised in the studio. I have never done a live stream before, at least not unsupervised. So I clicked a bunch of buttons. Hopefully, I'm showing up somewhere. I have no idea whether that's the case. It looks like 33 people are watching, so I'm, I'm somewhere. And hopefully on YouTube as well as on other locations. But it's general conference time. And I have committed myself to watching every session and every talk of every session of general conference this weekend and reporting on it to you. So that means it'll be the Saturday morning session today, Saturday afternoon session today, Saturday evening session later on. It will be a long day's journey in tonight for Radio Free Mormon. I can guarantee you that. But let's go ahead and let's talk a little bit about General Conference. Now, they were using a newer picture of Jesus Christ. It's like a picture of Jesus Christ at the Second Coming to advertise that it was this huge thumbnail. It was available on the LDS.org. I still say that. <laughs> LDS.org, Church of Jesus Christ.org website. And, you know, there was this older picture of Jesus Christ at the Second Coming. This is the one that was popular when I joined the church 45 years ago. And it had Jesus coming back, and there were two large groups of people, one on his right hand and one on his left, and it was a visual representation of the parable of the goats and the sheep, which I think is in Matthew 25, if I recall correctly. But in that picture, you've got Jesus there, and on his right hand are all these people who are looking at him, and they have the light shining on their faces, and they're really happy to see him because they're on his right hand. These are the sheep. The old picture, though, has on his left hand the goats, the people who are not happy to see him, who are in agony to see him because they have been brought to a bright recollection of all their guilt. And they are in darkness and they are looking down. They can't even bring themselves to look at the Savior's face. I don't know how many of you remember that painting, but it was indelibly etched on my mind. In fact, there were rumors about that painting. I don't know if you remember those rumors. One of the rumors, which may be true, is the fact that the artist himself painted himself into the picture, and he was one of the individuals on Jesus's right hand who was very happy to see Jesus. And then there's another rumor, which may not be as true, which is that the artist painted his wife on the other side of the picture, on the left hand of Jesus. I think that rumor is probably too good to be true, but who knows? It could be. Anyway, they've replaced it now with this newer picture. It's obviously the same format. You've got groups on the right and the left, but everybody's happy to see Jesus now. There's no people on the left hand being sad, left or right, doesn't make any difference. Everybody's happy to see Jesus. This is a more non-judgmental second coming picture of Jesus. All right, well, let me go to my notes. I made 20 pages of notes, typing them out furiously as conference was going on. I'll try and touch on a few things that I think are the more interesting. Now, Henry B. Eyring is the one who's conducting this session of general conference. President Nelson is not there because apparently he slipped, he fell. He can't get up, and he's not going to be there for general conference. And that was duly noted by President Eyring. Not only President Nelson not being there, but also Elder Holland is not there. But he said that they're both watching from home, and I'm presuming from different homes, their own homes. Uh, Elder Holland, excuse me, Elder 
Iring also mentions the passing of Sister Patricia Holland. And for those who have the audience who don't know who she is, he clarifies that that's the former ex, not ex, but deceased now, recently deceased wife of Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. And she passed away, I think, in July of this year. There'll be a reference made later on by another speaker to her funeral. The choir now sings how firm a foundation an invocation is given. And right up to bat, very first is going to be Elder David A. Bednar as the first speaker in general conference. Now, this is going to be uh, this is a rather boring, boring talk, I think. Uh, there's not a lot to it, but it certainly has a theme to it. And what Elder Bednar wants to do is get up and it's basically his version of thanking the little people. All right. He's the one who's up here in general conference. He's the one who gets all the accolades wherever he goes. He's the one who people stand up when he comes in and then they sit down after he sits down and they don't stand up until after he stands up. You know how it is with Elder Bednar. He's quite the martinet. But his speech is about thanking all the little people, the people in the the church who labor and serve faithfully and earnestly and well, but get no recognition like Elder Bednar gets. He starts talking about the pioneers coming to Utah and refers to a talk given some time ago. I'd never heard of it before by Reuben J. Clark called They of the Last Wagon, referring to pioneers coming across the, the plains and those in the last wagon eat up all the dust from all the wagons that are going before. And yet they continue on valiantly, nobly, independent, well, probably dependent, but they continue even though they're at the end of the line, even though history will not record their names. And indeed, we don't know them today. So let's see here. I'm looking at my notes. I'm trying to freelance this, but looking at my notes to make sure I don't um, skip anything. Yeah, I think this talk by Elder Ballard is supposed to make people feel good about cleaning the church toilets. And his word is we need to be serviceable. That's something I've always aspired to be, is to be serviceable. But serviceable to what and to whom we might ask? Yes, that would be to the LDS Church and to the Honorable David Bednar as well. At this point, I was reminded of a famous poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard by Thomas Gray, which I thought might have been quoted to good effect here by Elder Bednar. There's two stanzas or verses from it that I think would uh, apply here. Um, all of it does, because it's about an elegy written in a country churchyard where you have all these people buried who history is not going to remember all the things that they did and uh, doesn't make them unimportant. It's really a very touching poem, I think. But here's two verses from it. It says, let not ambition mock their useful toil. So if you're ambitious, don't mock these people who toiled very usefully. So basically, you could be ambitious to raise food and the farm, those kinds of things. Let not ambition mock their useful toil, their homely joys, their homely joys, and destiny obscure. Nor grandeur here with a disdainful smile, the short and simple annals of the poor. And then this other verse that follows after that, which has a very famous closing line. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. So the grave and death is the great equalizer to everyone. That is a date that we all must keep.
Okay, but he didn't quote that. Anyway, this seems to me his version also of saying, do what we tell you to do, or from his point of view, what the Lord tells you to do, even if nobody knows about it. All right, this isn't supposed to be for you to get publicity or commendation, such as, you know, Elder Bednar gets. And the first mention of the covenant path goes to Elder Bednar. Yes, Elder Bednar draws first blood on this. First talk, first mention of covenant path, extra credit for Elder Bednar. And he talks about the members' unpretentious, consecrated lives. You know, and I was thinking about this because, of course, the shadow, the specter of Tim Ballard in that entire situation that's going on with the church, with the statement that they issued back on September 15th, which is now 15 days ago, by my reckoning, which they have not followed up on to clarify, to confirm anything. But Tim Ballard hangs like a shadow over this conference, or at least he is the background against which I look at the language of this conference. And I would think it would be smart for the speakers to also take that into consideration, right? To think about how other people thinking about Tim Ballard might take their messages. And here, although Elder Bednar may not even mean it, with that context, I think, yeah, so are you talking about Tim Ballard here, that he should be consecrated but unpretentious, that he should be faithful but not public? I don't know. Is he? Okay. I'll leave that open question out there. So wives and children, according to Elder Ballard, who's, okay, he's going off, he's ticking off all these different people in the church who don't get any credit, like the elegy in a country churchyard. Uh, wives and children who sustain the men with priesthood leadership callings will be blessed for sustaining them. Of course they will. Because they, the guys, right? <laughs> because the guys bless the lives of so many other people. So when wives end up sustaining husbands who are away from home so much, that's a good thing they'll be blessed for it because they're blessing other people, even though uh, I guess they don't have enough time necessarily to bless their own family by their presence. But they're blessing other people. That's good. Those who have turned away from God are turning to him again. This is what he said. He wanted everybody to know that those who have turned away from God are turning to him again. And I thought, what? Where? Any details? Any examples? No. None of those, but he does want his audience to know that those who are turning away from God are turning back to him again. Good to know. And he says, I promise. Remember when apostles give promises? Yeah. Well, this is a really good promise from Elder Bednar. And I wrote it down, or I typed it out. I promise your personal anguish will be relieved and your faithfulness and patience to submit your will to God will be rewarded. And then the... <laughs> The clause at the end, you know, the the out at the end, that they will be rewarded in the own due time of the Lord. So if my promise doesn't happen now or tomorrow or any time in your lifetime, it's okay. It's still a good promise because it's up to the Lord to fulfill my promise to you in his own good time. Yeah. Thanks for the great promise, Elder Bednar. He gives a hat tip to the interpreters, calls them blessed with a gift of tongues. I noticed that. So once again, this idea of Gift of tongues being manifest not to give angelic voices or speak in the tongue of angels, as it says in the Book of Mormon, but only to speak in the language that other people can understand. And they are to be blessed because they serve anonymously to help people have faith by hearing and reading the Word of God. Also, a hat tip to married Mormons who keep it going, keep their 
faith going, keep their family going, these courageous souls heed not the secular voices extolling self-centeredness, he says. Okay. Let's see here. Many married couples still have faith in God, even though they can't have children. Now, he doesn't actually say that part out loud, but he does say that even though they are not able to have the desires of their heart, these married couples, but they need to wait on the timeline of the Lord. It seemed to me that he must be talking about couples who are not able to have children, even though they would like to, and even though the courage, excuse me, even though the church encourages them at every opportunity to have children. If you can't have children, don't wait, don't worry about it too much. They need to wait on the timeline of the Lord too. I think that's a very complicated timeline the Lord has. Talks about the thousands of nursery leaders and primary teachers who love and instruct the children of the church each Sabbath day and how wonderful all the kiddos are that they are serving and building their faith. Yeah. And, of course, the children taking care of aged parents and parents caring for frightened children, members who take down chairs and who invite non-members to church. Yes, he actually included the members who put up and take down the chairs in this nameless multitude of people who serve faithfully without uh, being known. And finally, he says, those these are all covenant-keeping and devoted disciples of Jesus Christ like you who are pressing forward in the path of duty. You are the strength of the Savior's restored church. Okay. All right, well, that's pretty much what he had to say. Like I said, it wasn't too thrilling. Second speaker is Amy Wright. She's the first counselor in the general primary presidency, and she immediately launches into the parable of the ten virgins. How many times do I have to sit through the parable of the ten virgins in general conference? It seems like you can't go through a general conference without hearing it at least once, and maybe more than once. Everybody knows it backward and forward, and yet. Amy feels necessary, or Sister Wright feels it necessary to read it again out of the scriptures, out of the New Testament. And I was thinking, does she really have to read this out loud again? Isn't this something we hear over and over again in general conference? Did Jesus tell no other parables than this one? Are there no other parables we could go over? Well, apparently not. So she quotes President Oaks, what if the day of his coming, Jesus is coming, were tomorrow? Hmm? What if? If we knew we would meet him tomorrow through death or his coming, what would we do today? And so that's the old, uh, you know, be very concerned because you don't know when he's going to come or when you're going to go to him. And so you need to conform your behavior to the highest standards of Mormonism right now. Repent and get back on path. Spiritual preparation for the Lord's coming is the only way to find true peace and happiness. She said the word true. I capitalized it here. Once again, this idea. True peace and happiness are found only through adhering with strictness to the tenets and commandments of Mormonism. I have found out through my own experience that that is not true. And actually, it's quite the reverse, at least in my experience. And so I will give my testimony of that to you right now. Um, she mentions a, a story which caught me off guard because she mentions that she had cancer and talking about the day that she was diagnosed with cancer. She was wondering if she would die. She was crying and praying on the way home. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And she says, the Holy Ghost whispered, everything is going to be okay. And so she says, what, will I live? 
And she said, the Holy Ghost said the same thing. Everything's going to be okay, which made her wonder, why are you answering the same thing? Because, you know, she's concerned about whether she's going to live. And the Holy Ghost is basically saying, whether you live or whether you die, it's going to be okay. But that was when she was filled with peace. All right. So when she mentioned that she was diagnosed with cancer, I thought, well, this is probably going to lead into a story about how she got healed. Obviously, she's still alive. She's standing there talking. So she made it through, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But I thought priesthood blessings, prayers, miraculous recovery, that this would follow. It doesn't. She doesn't use this story to talk about that. Instead, she uses a story to talk about the fact that she's very, very happy and filled with peace because she and her husband have raised their children in such a way so faithfully and going to church all the time, teaching them to pray, teaching them to read the scriptures, teaching them to heed the voice and the words of the prophets, that she knows they're on a good path and that ultimately, even if she dies, they will all join each other together in the celestial kingdom because they'll be faithful because she started them on the right path and they'll continue. So that's how she was filled with peace. Um. Yes, she's a very good mom. That's a subliminal message that's coming through. A very good mom. Um, but then she goes back to the 10 virgins. She says it was too late to put oil in their lamps. By the way, this I want to give her credit for, for coming up with a novel, I think, use of the oil in the lamps from the parable of the 10 virgins. She says it was too late to put oil in their lamps. And they needed every single drop. And they needed it right now, talking about her children. Yeah, if she died, her family would be comforted, strengthened, and one day restored to her and to each other in the celestial kingdom. And then she said, if she lived, she would have access to the greatest power on earth to heal her. I'm pretty sure I got that pretty much word for word. If she died, her family would be restored. But if she lived, she would have access to the greatest power on earth to heal her. And that did sound a little bit circular to me. If she lived, wouldn't it be because she already had access to that power on earth to heal her? I don't know. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it just doesn't make that much sense. And she um, talks about what does okay look like? I'm sorry. I'm not even sure what that means. This wasn't a, a hugely um, entertaining or interesting talk for me. She says that they that are wise and have received the truth and have not been deceived, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but they shall abide the day. So she's quoting scripture there, right? If you're wise, if you've received the truth and have not been deceived by people like Radio Free Mormon, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, okay? And that's a very positive thing for her, from her point of view because she feels that she is wise, she has received the truth, and she has not been deceived. Of course, then there are all those people who are hewn down and cast into the fire, but that's somebody else's problem, I guess. So we won't worry about that too much here. She talks about a magnifying glass and how it can make things more powerful. She doesn't do much with that analogy, but she makes it. We, we need to be gatherers of the light of Jesus Christ. Okay, focus that. She talks about Mount Carmel. She calls it the Evergreen Mountain. Perhaps that's a local name, north of Israel. And that it stays green because of the dew that falls on it. Just a little bit of dew every day. A little dab will do you. And that she likens to, we need to do small things on a regular base to build up our faith. Okay. Oh, and then she talks about how um, 
other people may be hearing her talk and saying, oh, but Sister Wright, you don't know my family. We're nothing like your family. Once again, this is the whole thing in the LDS church, and I've remarked on it before, is that we look at other people in the church and we think that they're perfect. Let me back up and say, church is a place we go to on Sunday to pretend that we're perfect. And we know inside that we're not perfect, but we pretend to be because we know that's the thing we're supposed to put off. That's what we're supposed to portray. We're supposed to present as being perfect. And um, everybody's doing that. And everybody's feeling probably pretty much the same way that they're pretending as well. The psychological thing that happens, though, in my experience, not always, but often enough, is that, at least in my case, I see everybody else who's pretending to be perfect at church, and I think they're really perfect. I'm pretending to be perfect. I know because I know the inside script, right? Because it's me, but I know that I'm not. And so because I think everybody else really is perfect, and I know that I'm pretending to be perfect, I start feeling worse and worse about myself and more and more um, depressed, maybe too strong a word. It isn't always too strong a word but getting more and more down on myself about why is it that I can't be perfect like everybody else is in the church. Sister Wright's kind of playing on that and saying, you know, somebody else, some other mother looking at her talking say, well, look, my family's nothing like your family because she's already demonstrated how great a mom she is and how she's raised her kids and everything so that they will continue on and, you know, everything will be great and they'll all be restored in the celestial kingdom. But she says, it's okay because God knows your family. I may not know your family, but God knows and you just need to have faith in Christ and believe and follow the prophets, everything's going to be okay, even for your family. All right, that's the end of her talk. The choir sings, I Feel My Savior's Love. By the way, I got word that my friend Jim Bennett is not going to be in the choir today, but he will be in the choir tomorrow. I'm not sure why that is, but I'll be looking for him tomorrow. He always adds a special tomber to the tenor, to the, the choir, tomber to the tenor. I think he's a bass. Okay. Let's go on to the next person speaking is Robert M. Danes. I think it's D-A-I-N-E-S of the 70. All right. He tells a story about some guy in 1945, I presume it's in association with World War II, who got shot behind the ear and he survived, but he became face blind, which I had not heard of. But basically something happened with his, um, his brain to where he couldn't recognize anybody by their face anymore. And so what he had to do was he had to start recognizing people by different attributes, whether it's freckles on a face or the way a person walks. And he gave a next story in quick succession about his mom. Growing up as a kid, he saw his mom as a rule maker. When he wanted to play, she would tell him. When he could play, when he had to go to bed, she would tell him. Or when he had to pull weeds, she would tell him she's always the rule maker. And he says, she loved me, but I saw her only as she who must be obeyed. And he kind of ran through that line. There was laughter, but he had already gone on to the next line. He needs to pause there so people can laugh. Uh, just a note to Elder Danes. Um, talks about his mother wearing only two old skirts while he got new school clothes every year. So he, he didn't see this, see. And he says, these stories are really one. He says, I was in effect face blind to my mother. I failed to see her as a real person. I saw her as a rule maker, but I didn't see her love for me. Not until he got older, of course. He says two stories, one point, spiritual face blindness. And of course, he's going to apply this to God, right? Now, he actually makes some good points here. And I think he makes better points than anybody that I see 
at least that strike me personally, in the Saturday morning session. He said, you may struggle to see God as a loving father. You don't see the face of love and mercy, but you see a thicket of rules through which you must wind your way. You may have no problem seeing God loves others, but you have a problem seeing that he loves you too. He stresses Jesus Christ and how everything we do in the church should have members seeing Jesus Christ. Whatever activity is, we should think, how is this going to help this group or this person see Jesus Christ better? By the way, by defining Jesus Christ or seeing Jesus Christ in this kind of spiritualized way of learning about him, we're also sort of de-emphasizing the idea of a literal seeing of Jesus Christ. At least that's my take on it. It's a possibility. He says, often the early disciples came face to face with the risen Lord, but did not recognize him, talking about from the New Testament. He mentions this, and I'm glad he recognizes this. Uh, he doesn't follow that idea any further. He just sort of mentions it. And I want to follow that idea just a bit here, because I think it's one of the interesting things about the New Testament, is that pretty much in every post-resurrection account we have in the four Gospels, the people who knew Jesus in mortality do not recognize him now that he's resurrected. Whether it's Mary at the tomb at the end of John, um, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks it's the gardener. And so we put in there the idea that she was crying and so she couldn't see through her tears or she was turned away and you know she's not looking at him. We read all that into the text because we have this idea in Mormonism that when we're resurrected, we're going to look the same as we did now, right? Because it's the same body being resurrected. Of course, it's going to look the same, but just, you know, really handsome or really beautiful and in really good shape. That's one experience. Then later on in John, when um, the apostles go to Galilee, because he said, you know, I'll meet you in Galilee. And they're out fishing all night and throwing on the, the left side, the net, you know, and Jesus comes along and he's walking on the shore. And he calls out to them to throw the net on the other side. Well, they don't recognize him. And we try and make it so that he's way off on the shore. And so he's too far away to actually see, right? But the story doesn't say that. There's Luke where he shows up in the upper room. And nobody recognizes him. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, handle my feet and my hands. Feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet for... A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about, a ghost? Look at me. Don't you recognize me? Look at my face. He doesn't say that. He says, look at my hands and my feet. Those are the tokens. And I think, um, oh, it's also in Luke, right? The two people on the road to a mouse, the two disciples, Luke and possibly Cleopas, although they're not identified in the story, they don't recognize Jesus either, even though he's walking right beside him and talking about all the Scriptures in the Old Testament prophesying of his coming and how he must suffer and die and be resurrected again. And then he disappears when they're sitting down there for meal at eventide at the end, I think it was. And then as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. Okay, now none of this is in the talk, but I think it's interesting because I think that the unified voice of all the Gospels is trying to teach us something that's very hard for Mormons to hear, which is that Jesus, after he was resurrected, did not look the same as he did before he died. He's completely different in appearance, so much so that even his closest associates and the disciples and Mary, they don't recognize him. Even though he's standing right there, there's something about 
Jesus, <laughs> there's something about Mary <laughs> that they can't recognize him. And I think the simplest and most obvious explanation is that the, the message of the Gospels is because he looks different, not because there's crying or because he's too far away or because of all these other excuses that we make in order to have him look the same. All right. Now, that's enough about that. Um, he talks about reading the Gospels over and over and over and praying for years to see Jesus' love, Jesus's love as opposed to his rules. Okay? That's interesting in a Mormon context. Of course, we always know, though, that whenever there's a talk like this, yeah, we see his love, but we still got to follow the rules. Okay? It's one thing to see him as loving, but you still got to follow his rules. So, um, Jesus touches the people who are polluted and unclean and feeds the hungry. He remarks on that. He even says, Jesus giving help to someone on the margins. This is one of the reasons I think this is an important talk, although it's given by a 70. Um, but talking about Jesus, he says, if you go through the Gospels and read it, and you write down or mark or highlight all the different sections where Jesus is helping those who are marginalized or on the outside, he says, you're going to find a lot of highlighting in your New Testament. Yeah, he said, try writing down every time he ministers to the outsiders. And he says, I began to feel that if he loved these outsiders so much, the people with leprosy and the harlots and all the dregs of society, I began to feel that he might love me. Yeah, if he loves these schmoes over there, I mean, what's to keep him from loving me? We have to follow Jesus and not just his rules. And then I put in parentheses, but we have to follow his rules too. Yeah, no matter how you frame it in Mormonism, you got to follow the commandments. Whether you put it as following Jesus or following the commandments, it all boils down to following the commandments. Um, this is about relationships, he says, not rules to earn his love, but to understand and shape our life to that love. Okay, so I'm going to say that again. This is about relationships, our relationship with Jesus, not rules to earn his love, but to understand and shape our life to that love. See, it all boils down to keeping the commandments. It's following the commandments no matter how you slice it. Then he tells a story about a calling that he got. doesn't say what the calling was, but he didn't feel up to it. He didn't feel that he was able to fulfill this calling. He didn't have the talents or whatever was necessary. And then he says, I'm sure God helped him with that. Um, he talks about serving, to serve in this church is to stand in the river of God's love for his children. I think he's quoting somebody there. I've never heard this quote. I'm not sure. It's not very meaningful to me. I'm not exactly sure exactly what it means, except that, you know, you're in the river of God's love when you're serving his in, in the church. Okay. It's a nice sentiment, I suppose. Whatever your path, there is room in the church for you. And there he's quoting, whatever your path, there is room in the church for you. Well, not exactly. There are certain paths that you can be on. There's not going to be room in the church for you. And there are some rumors out there. I don't even know if they're true. But rumors, and I want to identify them as rumors, is that Tim Ballard got excommunicated this past week. Um... I haven't heard it publicly. I've heard rumors being bruited about, but if it is true, that would be a classic example of somebody to which this expression would not apply. Whatever your path, there is room in the church for you. 
I don't know. It sounds nice to say, but you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's not true. Not at all. There. If your path, <laughs> if your path is one of a faithful Mormon, there's room in the church for you. <laughs> That's really mostly what it means. Okay. Uh, we're having way too much fun here with conference. Let's continue with Carlos B. Godoy of the 70. Hang on a second. Let me get out of here. Let me come back here. It looks like we're at 32 minutes. Oh my gosh, I've got to hurry this up. Otherwise, my recap's going to be longer than the session. That would be a travesty. Carlos B. Godoy of the 70 tells a story about this cab driver who takes him home from the airport and apparently he'd gotten in the wrong cab. I'm going to summar summarize and synopsize here. Gets into the wrong cab, but he thinks it's the right cab. Later on, he finds out that he took the wrong cab. He says, that's fine. I'll stay in this cab. I'm not understanding exactly why or how that works. Maybe they had a special car with the limousine chauffeur or something for him. I don't know. But he gets in this other cab and he's heading to his house and he starts talking to this guy, the cabbie. And uh, he finds out that this cabbie asks him, you know, out of the blue, you're Mormon, aren't you? Well, of course, he's going to tell him he's Mormon. And he talks to him about the church and the cabbie whose name is Omar He's an inactive member. He's got a family. None of them go to church. And Carlos B. Godoy says, I didn't take the wrong taxi. It wasn't a coincidence. The Lord was calling him back to his fold. And in this touching story, the cabbie actually sings a few lines of, I am a child of God, softly before dropping Elder Godoy back off at his home, but not before Elder Godoy has gotten his contact info, invited him to church, and promised to be there if he ever shows up in church. A few weeks later, Omar shows up at church with his son. A few weeks after that, Omar baptizes his wife and two children. And then Elder Godoy tells them if they are prepared, Elder Godoy would seal them in the temple in a year. And they did. And he has pictures to prove it. Um, he addresses two groups of people. First is members of the church who, for some reason, otherwise unspecified, but addressing members who, for some reason, have fallen away. And also those members today who aren't being as faithful as they should be. And this is probably going to be one of those talks that's going to get some airplay because this is the one where he takes your children and holds them hostage and tells you that you're not going to have your children unless you start doing what it is you're supposed to do as a good Mormon. And not only are you going to not get your children, there's your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, all the way down the line. You're really going to be mucking up the works if you don't be faithful in this life, because there's all these generations of your posterity who are counting on you. Okay, I, I summarized that pretty well. Let me see if there's anything else here. Um, I synopsized that so well, that could basically be it. But let me just go through this really quick so you can hear what I'm talking about, all right? Leaving the church will have an impact on their children and their children's children forever. See, I'm not making that up. That's a quote. They have lost the promise of eternal family. A whole legacy of faith has been broken, but it can be mended through Jesus Christ, at least if it's the Jesus Christ at the head of the Mormon church. He quotes President Nelson, if you have stepped off the path, please come back. It's very important to quote the president of the church in your talks, even if he's not present, but is viewing from home. Please come back. Whatever your concerns or challenges, there is a place for you in the Lord's church. That's the same comment that Elder Baines made, remember? Whatever your concerns or challenges, there is a place for you in the Lord's church. Well, I will tell you that I don't think that's universally correct because I have concerns 
that make it so there is no place for me in the Lord's church. And the Lord's church has made it very clear to me that they don't want me there. Okay. If I will sit there and shut up and be a butt in a pew, they're fine to have me present, but they don't want me to open my mouth. Believe me. Okay. So some may think going on to what he talked about, some may think we don't need to attend church every Sunday, or we don't need to pay tithing until times get better. Well, of course, those people are wrong. You do need to attend church Sunday, church every Sunday, and pay your tithing, even if times are not good. Those who think they can still remain faithful are mistaken. This is lukewarm membership. Again, you are putting your children at risk. Don't you care about your children? What kind of parent are you? I think CPS should be called. Yeah, church protective services. These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, wherefore they gain not the crown in the kingdom of our God. He's quoting from section 76 there. Is that what we want for ourselves and our children? For our own sake and for the sake of our posterity? I'm not kidding. He really drills this home about your children are at risk and uh, you got a real nice family there. It'd be a shame if something happened to you, to it, pal. And then he quotes uh, Elder Ballard about not being faithful because of negative things they may have heard about the church or its leaders, once again, otherwise unspecified. Yep, you need to stay faithful because your kids are at risk regardless of what you've heard about the church or its leaders. Negative things about the church or its leaders. If you are in either of these groups, please reconsider your course of action. Don't put your family at risk. (laughs) Yeah, again, don't be the weak link. Be the strong one. It is your turn to do it. And the Lord can help you. That's so kind of the Lord. He's really looking out for us. Look ahead and evaluate where this will lead and be valiant enough to shape your path for the sake of your posterity. Yes, he says it again. End of talk. Thank goodness. Choir sings high on the mountaintop. Next up is D. Todd Christofferson. Yeah, he gives his talk and it's about the gathering. And, you know, there are certain times when a speaker announces the subject of their talk and the eyes just start rolling up in the back of the head, the gathering, really. What he's going to talk about is temples, keys, priesthood. But, you know, some interesting questions came to my mind as he was speaking. And I think I need to get to those really quick. Um, He talks about the sealing keys through Elias, uh, Kirtland Temple, 1836, restored. Moses comes in, restores the keys of gathering. But he wants to focus on Elijah. He wants to focus on Elijah, which he describes as giving the power to make all the ordinances valid in the sight of God. Now, let me repeat that because this has become a trope in Mormonism, which I think is disconnected from the actuality, or at least the actual theology, of the importance of Elijah coming to restore the sealing keys. It has become common in Mormonism to talk of this power as the power that validates all other ordinances and makes them of effect right? So a ceiling in the temple or a marriage in the temple is not really effective until it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which now has become defined as the ceiling keys restored by Elijah. I'm sure you've heard of this before. Once again, I think that's probably not what the original understanding was. And that fact was underscored by the question it raised in my mind when Elder D. Todd Christofferson was speaking. I thought, but why do we need a power, Elijah's power, why do we need a power to make good the ordinances that are already performed by the power of the priesthood? We have to have the Aaronic priesthood to baptize or bless and pass the sacrament. We have to have the Melchizedek priesthood to confirm, to do all these other ordinances, right? 
Why do we need the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood in order to perform those ordinances if they don't become effective until they are sealed by the power of Elijah? That's my question, and I think that's the problem that this interpretation of the sealing keys of Elijah runs into. I'm not sure I'd ever thought of that before. So I think that occurred to me during general conference. I mean, why do we have to have the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood if nothing that they perform by their authority, the ordinances, are effective until Elijah gets around to sealing things? I don't know. I think it's a good question. So their sealing authority applies beyond temple ordinances, but this authority is needed to make any ordinance valid beyond death, including baptism. Okay? I raise the question again. The authority of Elijah is necessary to make any ordinance valid beyond death, including baptism. So why do you need the Aaronic priesthood to perform a baptism? Then he goes to temples. He wants to talk about temples because Joseph Smith, whom he quotes, says the main purpose of the gathering is to build a temple. That's back when the gathering was actually a literal thing. Like it says in the Articles of Faith, we believe in the literal gathering. Ah, But now it's become... In completely spiritualized. There is no more literal gathering going on and none envisioned. Not to Missouri, not to anywhere because they're selling all their land in Missouri. And people are wondering, why are you, why did you buy up all this land in Missouri only to sell it when we thought we were returning there someday? Because that's what the Doctrine and Covenants says. Well, I guess we're not. So we have to spiritualize the gathering and make it non-literal. Oh, he talks about the temples and the vicarious ordinances in the temple and how that is a perfectly fair system so everybody can get the ordinances, whether living or dead. Sealing power is necessary to bind families and generations together. But then I ask this question. Why do we need the sealing power either? Now, this is a question that did not occur to me for the first time while I was listening to this talk. But why do we need the sealing power at all? Because on the one hand, Mormon leaders are very clear that we have to be individually righteous to obtain our exaltation. We may do that in the company of other people, like you got to be married, right? But we have to be individually righteous to obtain our exaltation. And every member of our family has to be individually righteous to obtain their exaltation with us, right? So if that's true, won't we all be together in the celestial kingdom regardless of any sealing power? If every member of the family is individually righteous, won't we be there anyway? And what's to prevent us from living as a family since we're a family? On the other side, if we are righteous or if I am righteous, <laughs> right, if I am righteous but our family members are not, will they not be exalted? Excuse me. They won't be exalted with us, right? because they didn't make the grade. They didn't cut the cheese. They will not be exalted with us regardless of the ceiling power. So if we all have to be individually righteous to be exalted, and if any of us who are not individually righteous will not be exalted with us in our family, what is the ceiling power about? It seems to have no meaning, no purpose or at least not the purpose that is generally attributed to it by the church. I think that it makes sense to me, the sealing power only makes sense to me 
if the sealing power is there to bind those to us in the celestial kingdom who would not have otherwise been righteous enough to merit exaltation on their own. That's the only reason the sealing power makes any sense to me, theologically speaking. And I think that that got touched upon about the Orson F. Whitney quote, which we hear sometimes, even today. The tentacles of divine love will reach out. And after a while, those people, those children who have strayed will be restored to us in the celestial kingdom, regardless of the choices they made. Ah, now he mentions the funeral service for Pat Holland, Patricia Holland, and quotes, <laughs> but he does it in the context of quoting President Nelson. I'm sorry, Pat, I'm sorry, but your funeral is basically just sort of, um, it's a, it's a time for focusing on President Nelson. And we all saw the pictures of a funeral where all the, the high back red plush velvet chairs were lined up there and her coffin was below and in front. And the focus was definitely on the authorities of the church and not the person for whom the funeral was being held. Similarly, President Nelson is going to be quoted in the context of the funeral service for Patricia Holland. And um, I guess he said something about, oh, that Pat and Jeff, the Hollands, would be reunited together with their covenant-keeping children. The only children you're going to be reunited with, Jeff and Pat, are the ones who keep the covenant, who are righteous, who do everything that they're supposed to do in the Mormon church, which once again highlights this idea that I brought up. If those are the only people who are going to be with you, why do you have to be sealed? What is the sealing thing that we talked about? And also mentioning that Patricia's most important date, the most important date in Patricia's life was when she got married to Jeff Holland in the St. George Temple. President Nelson is going to declare that on her behalf at her funeral. And then he tells a story about a friend in the Provo Temple whom he tracked it out when he was on his mission in Argentina. So he's going backward in time. He was a missionary. They got baptized. Many years go by. On this day, they're up in the Provo Temple. And he is now, because he's a general authority, D. Todd, he's going to seal her deceased parents to one another and then to seal her to them. He says this is one of the most important things in the earth that was taking place in that temple on that day, that sealing. And this is the ultimate step in gathering a covenant people. See, it's been completely spiritualized now. The ultimate step in gathering a covenant people and the highest privilege you can have in this world is what he talked about there. Well, I think the second anointing is higher, but he's not going to talk about that, is he? Then he gives his testimony. Okay, next person is Ian S. Ardern of the 70. Now, this talk is like a United Way spiel. Back when I worked at the prosecutor's office, um, every year, there was a guy, we'd have to go into the conference room and have some representative of the United Way come in and give us the spiel about all the good stuff they do and please contribute. This was like that, except for the Church Humanitarian Fund. And he talks about being in Africa. He takes us on a tour of Africa. It's a drought. There's no rain. There's no vegetation. The children are not in school. 92% of the children you see live in food poverty. And I thought, too bad somebody with $157 billion couldn't lend a hand. The women, or at least the majority of women, spend more than 30 minutes going each way to get water for their family. 
And then he just says, you arrive at a shady clearing. He's doing all this um, setting the scene, right? There's no running water, no electricity, and no flush toilets. Well, at least they don't have to clean them. I suppose that's the positive thing. But they have gathered to receive help and hope. And you, as he brings you into the picture, you have arrived to share it. At which point I thought, wow, white savior complex, much? Now he finally identifies where he is in Africa. It's Uganda. He's there with Sister Eubanks and some other Mormons that he mentions. And they're coming over there talking about helping these Africans, these Ugandans. He talks about UNICEF and other uh, charitable organizations that the church donates to in order to help. It sounds like a lot more needs to be done. It is strange that he talks about all the dire poverty, but he doesn't really talk about how they are helping alleviate that. He leaves that open. And once again, he's doing a pitch for people to contribute to the church humanitarian fund. He commends the members who have contributed because of how much it is helping. And then he conveys, <clears throat> sorry, he conveys a message from the Africans to the Utah Mormons who contributed to the humanitarian fund. And that message is, thank you. God tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Gives other examples from the scriptures of compassion, how Jesus heals the sick. And then, like I, this is at the point where I'm realizing it's a call for contributing to the church humanitarian fund. But he makes this call not only to the wealthy, to those who can contribute without it impacting their ability to put food on the table, but he makes it really clear he wants the rich and the poor alike to contribute to the church humanitarian fund. It's kind of like the view on tithing. He's got this about the church humanitarian fund. And it becomes clear when he says he thanks those who have contributed, both rich and poor. And he says, we are equally grateful for your two pence, your two pesos, or your two cents. So it's like the widow's might or the widow's mites. And I think that depends on which gospel you're reading. Anyway, it's a tiny amount. But he's grateful for that too, thereby encouraging even those who can not really afford to be contributing, probably because they, they're paying a full tithing, to give their two pence, two pesos, and two cents to the Church Humanitarian Fund as well. That's the end of his talk. The choir sings Faith in Every Footstep. The concluding speaker is Dallin Oaks. We're to the concluding speaker here. Or uh, as he's come to be known now as Dallin, now is the great day of my power, Oaks. Members, oh my gosh, you know, he does this whole setup of this talk, but it's going to get back to his favorite theme, and we all know what it is. It's the proclamation on the family and how it's never going to be changed and how it was given by inspiration and revelation, and you know what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about how gender is an essential characteristic of our pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal identity and purpose. Yes, he loves that line. That is the entire proclamation as far as he's concerned, or at least so far as we would know from hearing him talk about it. Yeah, once again, he's going to be talking about homosexuals without talking about homosexuals. All right. Really quick, members frequently ask our church. Uh, members frequently ask us how our church is different from other churches. He says, well, God loves all his children so much. He wants us all to live in a kingdom of glory forever. Also, he wants us to live with him and Jesus, God and Jesus eternally. And now he's going to talk about agency. And he's really going to hit this part hard, that there are different laws for every kingdom 
And we, with our agency, get to choose what laws we want to follow, which will qualify us for one of those three kingdoms. All right. His idea being that this is the law that we're comfortable living, so we'll be comfortable in that kingdom. Okay. Well, that's nice. Of course, you won't have your family with you. That's not so nice. But his plan gives us the chance to make the choices that will lead us to the destiny we choose. He distinguishes one heaven and one hell from other churches. Within my father's house are many mansions in our church. If As long as those mansions are interpreted as kingdoms of glory. We teach that all, with exceptions too limited to mention here, he says, we all will each obtain a kingdom of glory. After punishment is needed, all will be resurrected. And Jesus will send his children to one of those kingdoms of glory as manifested through their own choices. The highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. This is the focus of the Mormon church is getting people there. All kingdoms have a law given and the kingdom of glory we get is determined by the laws we choose to follow in mortality. This is so that we can obtain a kingdom whose laws we can comfortably abide. Now, this is a he's hitting it so hard that it's raising this question in my mind because I think he's making stuff up at this point. Because I thought, what? So the laws are different in the different kingdoms. I have, I don't recall hearing that before. I've heard certainly the first part that we get to choose what laws we obey and the laws we obey here is going to determine what kingdom we go to. But this idea that he is talking about is that there are laws in the different kingdoms and there are fewer commandments to follow in the terrestrial kingdom than in the celestial kingdom. And there are fewer still in the celestial kingdom. And apparently that's forever. This is a strange and unique doctrine that Elder Oaks is teaching us today, is that there, not just that there are rules and laws that we have to follow in the different kingdoms, but they're different. And apparently, the further you go down, the easier, the easier they are to obey. The purpose of the church is to save people in the celestial glory and exalt them in the highest level thereof. Oh, here we go. Yep, yep, yep. This is where he goes. Exaltation can be obtained only by faithfulness to the covenants between a woman and a man married in the holy temple. Yeah. That was when he rips his mask off and says, aha, here I am. It's Elder Oaks after all. And I'm talking about my favorite subject, the proclamation on the family. Jiminy freaking Christmas. We got to hear this again. We might have forgotten it. <laughs> Well, I guess we got a respite last general conference when all he did was get up there and read some sayings of Jesus for his entire talk. So he's been spoiling for a chance to talk about this again. That proclamation, in case you don't know, is not changeable. It's founded on irrevocable doctrine. Well, until it get re gets revoked, which will probably not be too long after President Oaks' demise. Those who do not choose to abide the law of a celestial kingdom will inherit another kingdom of glory, lesser than the celestial but the law of a lesser kingdom that they can comfortably abide. He says that a number of times, that they can comfortably abide. Okay. He talks about those in the terrestrial kingdom, those in the telestial kingdom. Does mention those in perdition now, outer darkness, where he defines them. He's reading from section 76, liars and sorcerers and horror mongers and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Ooh, the irony of President Oaks talking about those who inherit Oh, this is telestial, I think. Yeah, that's I think that's telestial. But still, talking about the, the liars who inherit the telestial kingdom, and that's coming out of Elder Oak's mouth without even a hint 
of self-awareness. During this life, he goes on, you get to choose which laws you will obey and therefore which kingdom of glory you will inherit forever. So if gay people or trans people, they have their own agency, they get to choose whether they're going to follow the laws that God has prescribed in the proclamation on the family. But do they really? Hasn't Elder Oaks already seeded the point that this is not an individual choice? Well, I guess the individual choice isn't how you feel. The individual choice is how you act. So you, if you act contrary to who you are on the inside, but in accordance with Mormonism, you're going to be good to go. Perfect. And by the way, that is the definition of integrity in the Mormon church. Living on the outside different than the way you are on the inside. The final judgment, he says, is not just an evaluation of some total of good and evil acts. It is based on the final effects of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. He mentions, interestingly, the Book of Mormon where it says this, is, this life is the time to prepare to meet God, which shows no hint, as it does anywhere in the Book of Mormon, about any idea that after death you can do anything to improve your situation with God. In fact, it makes it clear you can't. But then he quotes Joseph F. Smith, I believe it was, whom he says expands, but I would say contradicts that thought in the Book of Mormon, where the dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. So Book of Mormon authors or Joseph Smith in 1829 has no inclination about any kind of work for the dead or any repentance possible for the dead. That doesn't come until about a decade later in 1840. Okay. He says, there is much we don't know about the pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal world, but we do know these eternal truths. Yeah. And he has an interesting ending, and I'll be closing with this. Wow, this took about an hour. I'm going to have to speed these up. A very interesting ending and kind of strange. It was like this weird note at the end, but apparently there's enough concern, and I'm guessing this is among sisters in the church, okay? I'm just guessing that they are going to be stuck with the guy that they got married to in the temple here in mortality for the rest of eternity. And the only reason I say that is because what he says at the end is God will force nobody into a sealed relationship they don't want. All righteous, all of the righteous must be sealed, but God will not force you to be sealed to somebody who is unrighteous or unwilling. And then he kind of like, just closes in the name of Jesus Christ, and that's it. I wasn't, it seemed like a tag on to the end of this. It didn't seem to flow from the talk. But apparently, he's responding to a lot of people who are really concerned about the spouse that they got sealed to in the temple and being stuck with them forever. So he wants everybody to know, yeah, we say it's forever, but it doesn't have to be. If you don't like them, we can, we can change them up on you, okay? We'll find you someone you do like to be with forever. The choir then sings, come listen to a prophet's voice, and the first session of General Conference, the 193rd semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, comes to a close. Wow, that took an hour. I'm going to try and do it a little bit quicker the next time. But I will be here, I think it'll be in about three hours, to talk about the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. Please hit like, please hit subscribe. And I will see you in a few minutes. I hope you're enjoying General Conference as much as I am. Once again, 
Radio Free Mormon, watching General Conference, so you don't have to.